The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Thank you, worship team, Jesse, Brian, Danny. He will hold me fast. One of my favorite songs as of right now, and probably will be for a while. And actually, a theme we'll be looking at today in our study of Galatians. Why don't you turn to Galatians with me? Galatians chapter 2. That's where we started last week, if you'll recall. And I promised you a two-week series, and that's what you're going to get, a two-week series. So, let's look into Galatians chapter 2. Last week, we looked at five rock-solid pieces of evidence. Actually, it was six. I added a sixth at the last minute, and it didn't make it into these notes. But it was six last week. Six rock-solid pieces of evidence last week for how we could know with certainty that the gospel that Paul preached... The gospel that Paul brought to the Galatians, the gospel that Paul writes in all of his epistles, writes about in all of his epistles, Philippians, Romans, Colossians, Galatians, is from Jesus Christ. So we we locked that in. It's clear, it's well-founded for you to believe that the gospel that Paul gives you is from Christ himself. If you want to be right with God, you go to the gospel that Paul provides in his epistles. And today, I mentioned this last week, but I want to plumb more deeply into the the depths of this gospel, the truths of this gospel. And we can't become numb to this. We can't think this is irrelevant to us, as though we've heard these things before. Because you have a church in Galatia that had started well. Paul said, you started well, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They had started well, and now there was something that had come in to their thinking. It had made their way into their life, and it was beginning to severely hinder their walk with Jesus. We're talking about a strong Christian church that had begun well, and they needed to be reminded again and again and again what the gospel was, what that good news of Jesus Christ was, so that they could be back on course. They could get back on course. So let's get back into our context from last week. I'm going to focus on verses 15 and 16. I think it says in your um, bulletins that we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 5. We'll just touch on those verses. We're really focusing on 15 and 16. But what's going on here? Well, Paul was greatly dismayed, to just put it lightly, of what was happening in Galatia. He was amazed that this church who had begun well, who had embraced the grace of Jesus Christ, that You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that they had embraced this glorious gospel that started to drift away from that gospel and started to believe things like you need to obey the old covenant laws and regulations in order to be right with God. Faith plus obedience to the faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law equals salvation. And they were starting to believe this. And Paul couldn't believe that they were starting to accept this. And Paul tells them there's no other gospel. You hear these things. It sounds like gospel, but there's no other gospel, and they need to snap out of it and start to cast off these legalistic burdens that have been placed on them by these Judaizers, these false teachers. And you might be tempted to say, oh, come on, Dan. Surely it's not a big deal of just adding a few old covenant rules to faith in Christ. Surely this is just theological hair splitting, Derek. And I wish it was. Actually, In the case of the Galatians, they had started to believe something wonky and weird and strange about the the gospel, and it was beginning to affect, negatively affect, their spiritual lives. It was having a palpable, noticeable effect in their spiritual lives that Paul will begin to talk about. And notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul rebukes them, for their foolishness of giving in to this gospel that had been presented to them. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know that Jesus Christ was crucified. Shouldn't that be enough? You behold Jesus Christ crucified in the gospel. What else could you possibly add to that work? Who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? He asked them this rhetorical question about their conversion experience. 
to get them to realize they had received the gospel, they had received the spirit, they had received the regenerating spirit by believing a message of what Jesus had done for them, not about something that they must do for Jesus. That's how they received the Spirit. Remember that, Galatians? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? The question answers itself. You receive the gospel and you receive the Spirit by believing a message, not by performing works of the old covenant law. Remember that? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? And I want us to notice that word flesh there. Because what had started to happen here was that they had started to work against God's design for their growth and holiness, their sanctification. See, God is concerned about holiness. God is concerned about sanctification. God is concerned about works. But you must get things in their right order. If you seek to be justified by your holiness, you'll never be justified. If you seek to be right with God by your holiness you'll never be right with God. If you seek to be right with God by your works, you'll never be right with God. You have to get things in their right order. First, justification by faith in Christ alone. And then from that, the Spirit flowing through you to produce fruits and good work. But something had happened to hinder this work of the Spirit in their lives, and now it was beginning to produce what we would call, what Paul would later call the works of the flesh. That's why it's important to notice this word flesh here. He's saying, you began with the Spirit, the enablement of the Spirit, through faith in this gospel message, and you started well, but now are you attempting to now perfect yourself or grow in holiness by this addition of works to the gospel? And this was having a negative effect to the point where it's actually, I would argue, causing sin to flourish in their life. And I, and I say that because in chapter 5, verses 16 through and following, Paul says this, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on to list what those works of the flesh are. In verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. So he gives this catalog of works of the flesh right after he had exhorted them to walk by the Spirit so you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And he had just exhorted the Galatians here in chapter 3 that they cannot resort to trying to sanctify themselves by the flesh, but it only comes through faith. And so here's the, here's the logic of Galatians. Listen, listen this, is, this, is, this is so crucial for us because my point is that this wasn't just for Galatia. This is for any Christian church who thinks themselves to be walking currently in the gospel. We need to hear this so that we are not sidetracked. Okay. The Holy Spirit only dwells in a person by faith in Christ, not by a person's attempt to be justified by keeping God's law. Therefore, when a person begins to walk according to works rather than faith in Jesus Christ in order to be righteous before God, the Holy Spirit is stifled. It's choked, if I can use that kind of language, in the Christian's life. And that's why I think you find Paul listing these works of the flesh immediately after he had just exhorted the Galatians to walk by the Spirit so they wouldn't gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if you don't walk by the Spirit, you won't produce the fruit of the Spirit. You'll produce the works of the flesh. In order to walk by the Spirit, you must be walking by faith in Christ. This is the logic of Galatians. In order to walk by the Spirit, you must be walking by faith in Christ. In order to walk by faith in Christ, you must have a clear sight and understanding of the gospel. If the gospel is tainted, even with the smallest bit of works, any works, then faith is stifled. And when faith is stifled, then the indwelling power of the Spirit is stifled. Do you see the connection here? If, you have, if, your, if your vision and clarity on the gospel becomes muddled, then you're not able to embrace fully who Jesus Christ is for you by faith, 
Therefore, then the Spirit is hindered from working powerfully in your life. Therefore, you are now disabled in a significant way from putting to death sin in your life and producing the works or the fruit of the Spirit. When the power of the indwelling Spirit is stifled, a person has no resources with which to fend off the deeds of the flesh and to put them to death. That's why you begin to see a growth in works of the flesh when you start to become confused about the gospel. So if you, if you don't think that this is a big deal to get clarity on what the gospel is, then you don't yet understand the connection between the gospel and your growth in Christ-likeness or your growth in holiness. In order for us to grow and produce the fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit has to dwell within us richly, and that only happens when we're able to embrace Christ and all that He is through Faith alone in his gospel, not by attempting to earn our way with God or to establish our own righteousness by our works. It also seems, this is interesting, it also seems that another sign, and we're going to be talking about these a little bit later, these signs that seem to indicate that we might be walking by works and not by faith, but another sign that there is trouble in Galatia and that this believing of this alternate gospel was having an effect on their spiritual lives was the fact that their love for Paul and for others had seemed to diminish. They had started well. The Spirit was flowing. They were believing. There was a clear conduit, you might say, for the Spirit to flow into their lives. It wasn't obstructed by this attempt to justify themselves by their works. And they had begun well, but now something had gone wrong. And Paul indicates that this had... A palpable, there's a palpable example of something that had gone wrong here in Galatia. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. This is chapter 4. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So we don't know what that is. It might have been an eye issue. That's what it seems that it was. We're not entirely sure. But it didn't matter what his physical condition was. It was a kind of physical condition that almost kind of would have been a distraction, almost kind of hard to handle. Maybe he did have an eye condition. Maybe it was so bad that it's hard to... Just imagine if I had like an oozing eye ailment up here. It'd be hard. Bob's going to go check that out. Did it break from the inside? Check the pressure on this room, Bob, the, uh, the internal air pressure. I get apparently breaking, breaking windows and whatnot. It's the, it's the Word of God. The Word of God is like a fire. All right. Um, but imagine if I had uh, a significant eye ailment, oozing eye ailment, and, you, and it'd be hard for you to pay attention. It, like, it would be a distraction. Well, something was wrong with Paul, some sort of ailment, and it says, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? What did their blessedness consist of? Open-armed, gracious love, even in trying times to embrace Paul, to love him. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. That's why we think that it was probably an eye ailment that Paul had. They were willing to sacrifice for Paul. But Paul now questions, what happened to your blessedness? You seem to be closed off from me. You seem to be, your heart has tightened up and closed up. There is a kind of hesitancy. You're pulling back. What has gone on here? So, not only does there seem to probably be a, a growth in the works of the flesh here in Galatia, but also a situation where you have this, this hindrance of love and hindrance of joy in their life. They seem to be standoffish, even now acting as if Paul is their enemy. How did this happen? How did this happen? Why did their love diminish? If you begin to believe that it's faith plus works of the law to be justified by God, if you begin to believe that, then the power of the Holy Spirit is cut off in your life. That's all that needs to happen. Is to, is to become fuzzy on what the gospel is. If you become fuzzy on how to be right with God. And that can happen to believers. 
You can begin to question how you are really right with God. And you begin to wonder, do I need to secure my salvation, my justification, my righteousness by my works? And we begin to become fuzzy and the spirit begins to be cut off from our life and we begin to have little resource to fend off the works of the flesh in our own life and to experience the fruit of the spirit. And an indication that that is happening is that your love is beginning to diminish just like it was in Galatia. So getting justification right and preaching it regularly to yourself and finding ways to immerse your mind in the truth of justification, a doctrine we're looking at today, is essential for your walk with the Lord, for your growth in Christ-likeness. It's a matter of sanctification and in maintaining an unobstructed conduit through which the Holy Spirit can flow into your life. And I can just say by experience that when I am clear on the gospel and how I stand right with God, when I am reminded of Christ's work on my behalf, when I am reminded that it is not by works that I have been set right with God, but it's by Christ's work alone, his death and resurrection, my heart and my mind are refreshed, I feel stabilized in the faith, I'm able to fend off sin, and so on. So this, just, this isn't theological hair-splitting. Christians and churches that get this wrong or allow there to be an encroachment of wrong teaching at this level cut themselves off from Christ and the Holy Spirit and self-righteousness will abound, sin will abound, and will dry up like a branch cut off of a tree. So, all right, what's this gospel that we need to protect? That's what we're going to dive into today. Notice here in chapter 2, verses 14 and following, You'll remember last week that one of the pieces of evidence that Paul's gospel was from Jesus Christ himself was the fact that he was willing to confront an apostle who was walking in hypocrisy and undermining the gospel by his conduct. You remember that last week? And so what he does is he's responding. He says, this is how I responded to Peter. Peter was acting in a way that was contrary to the gospel by refusing to eat with Gentiles. And this is how I responded to him. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So just one translation note here for a moment. If you're reading the NASB, you'll notice that the quotation mark begins in verse 14 and likely goes through verse 21. If you're reading the ESV, it's only in verse 14. So it's as though Paul is saying... This is, this is what I said to Paul. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Stop. And then Paul goes on to say some other things, basically saying them to the Galatians. I think the, uh, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is actually closer to getting this right than the ESV. Now, you don't have quotation marks used in Koine Greek, which is what the uh, New Testament epistles were originally written in. So what you have here is translators trying to, to, to show you where they think Paul is indicating, this is what I said to Peter, and this is where I stopped, stopped my monologue to Peter. I think you need to go at least all the way through verse 16, if not all the way through to verse 21. In other words, what I mean is, is Paul saying, my monologue with Peter went like this. If you, though a Jew, so on and so forth, through 15, through 16, and possibly all the way through 21. That's what I said to Peter. When I caught Peter in hypocrisy, this is the the monologue that I gave him. At the very least, I think you need to go through verse 16 so that his answer is, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Remember Peter? Yet we know, remember Peter, that, that a person is not justified by works of the law. Right, Peter? So he's going to say those things. This is what he's saying to Peter. And at the very least, he should be going through verse 16. So that's, that's how I interpret this passage. And if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a quick review here. Paul was confronting Peter because Peter, now a Christian, who is now freed from that old covenant law and restrictions, particularly those dietary restrictions, was free to fellowship and eat with Gentiles. 
It was, it was a beautiful thing happening. There's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. No more food distinctions, no distinctions whatsoever in terms of spiritual and religious distinctions. They could fellowship together. They were saved the same way. They knew God the same way. And they could sit down together and have a meal together. But when Peter started to back away, what that did was signal that the old covenant restrictions are still in place. And that if you want to be righteous, you do need to start following Peter, and following Peter means starting to implement those Old Testament restrictions again. And this would have been hugely confusing to the Gentiles, and in fact it was hypocrisy because it's not really what Peter believed. He did it because he was afraid of what the the Jews, these Judaizers coming down from Jerusalem would think of him, and so he acted in this way. But he didn't really believe it, but that's why Paul calls it hypocrisy. Fear of man can lead us to act hypocritically, can it? I mean, your fear of man is very powerful. It's so powerful it can even cause an apostle to go astray for a moment. But it was hypocrisy in Peter's case because we know that he didn't believe it. Paul knew that he didn't believe it. And he reminds Peter that, listen, you're you're a Jew, you're born a Jew, but you you no longer live like a Jew. You no longer live under the Old Testament dietary restrictions. In Acts 10, for example, God comes down in a vision to Peter and and shows Peter a vision, this huge vision of all these animals, and he says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And God again says, no, kill and eat. And he does this until Peter says, okay, I, I give. And what God was doing in that vision was showing Peter that there is no longer these restrictions on the food that you are to eat and even more importantly, you're not to consider Gentiles unclean anymore. So Paul is going to remind Peter, listen, Peter, you don't really believe these things anymore. Remember, you're a Jew. You don't live like a Jew anymore. You live like a Gentile when it comes to eating of foods. You're no longer under the old covenant restrictions. It doesn't make any sense for you to pull back away from these Gentiles. Eat with them. Their fellowship with them. You are one with them in Christ Jesus, despite the fact that they were born Gentile and you were born a Jew. Verse 15, I would argue then, is a continuation of the quotation here. This is what I said to Peter. I said, we ourselves are Jews by birth. You and me, Peter, were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know what it's like to be raised under the old covenant. And he contrasts them to Gentile sinners. And you read that and you'd be like, oh, that sounds a little self-righteous there. We're the Jews and they're the Gentile sinners. That's not what Paul's doing. In fact, we know that's not what he's doing because he's very clear that he sees that all people are equally sinful and all people are equally saved through Jesus Christ. What he's doing is he's simply contrasting the Gentiles who didn't have the religious system in the Old Testament law that God had given Israel. So in that sense, they were irreligious They were sinners in a different sense than Israel was sinners because they didn't have God's law. So it's not a derogatory or self-righteous kind of statement. It is simply Paul contrasting the Jews with the Gentiles. But what he's doing here is he's saying, listen, Peter, you know we're Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Remember, Peter, you know this. You know that backing away from table fellowship doesn't make any sense because, precisely because, you're not justified by keeping those Old Testament regulations and restrictions. You're not justified by works of the law. How are you justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't really believe what your conduct says you believe. This is hypocrisy. But by eating... By not eating with the Gentiles, it betrays what you really believe and what you really know. You know as well as I do that no person, Jew or Gentile, is declared righteous by God, whether he eats a camel or a rock badger or not. That's not how you're justified. That's irrelevant, actually. A person is justified, as he says here, by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what his point is here. And that's Paul's argument to Peter. Remember that? You remember that, Peter? And, and, and likely what happened here is Peter did snap out of it and was set back on course because of Paul's courageous confrontation and Paul's clarity on the gospel and Paul's unwillingness to waver at any point on the gospel. And he snaps Peter back on course. 
Praise be to God, because Peter would continue to go on and have fruitful ministry. But what I want to do now is I want to go deeper into this text in verse 16 by asking nine questions. You might be thinking, nine questions. I promise you, only, each question will only last ten minutes. No, I'm just kidding. We'll go through these quickly, okay? But I want us to go deeper into these these verses here with these nine questions, because now what we need to grasp is this doctrine of justification. And I pray that it is refreshing and stabilizing for you this morning. What does it mean? This is question number one. What does it mean to be justified? One of the faults that we can have is by giving a lot of jargon, right, as Christians. We, we speak in a certain language, and that's that's, that's fine in a sense because we are acquainted with Scripture and Scripture has a particular language and particular words. But we want to be careful that we don't just speak them past each other and assume we, we know what we're talking about. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means that God has declared you fully, completely, and finally righteous in His in, in completely and finally righteous before his law as you stand before him. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. The setting is a courtroom. That's, this, that's the language is justification. It's not, here's a big word, it's not an ontological term. It doesn't have to do with your inner being. It doesn't have to do with your essence. It has to do with an external ruling ruled on your behalf based on something that someone else has done for you. But it's a legal term. It's forensic. It's an objective status declaration. God declares you righteous before him, before his law, completely and totally. The the righteousness that he requires, he sees you as having fulfilled. How can that be? Well, we'll answer that question too. But Romans 8, 33 and 34... Help us recognize this forensic, the forensic nature of this term. And how can we know that? Because you might be wondering why the labor over really proving that this is forensic. Because this issue is, is attacked to this day. It's undermined to this day. In scholarship, in popular literature. Well, it's not really forensic. When you talk about it being forensic, that's kind of a cold and harsh way of thinking about it. But in fact, if we don't see it in the forensic Way, then we are likely to begin to subtly or overtly begin to rely upon our works again because we think that somehow, some way, justification has to do with what we do rather than what Christ has done. So let me show you how Paul is very clear that this justification is a legal forensic term. Verse 33 of Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against a God's elect? It is God who justifies. Okay, there's the word justifies. Okay, Who does it? Well, it's God. From his heavenly courtroom, he's the one who declares you righteous. What's the opposite of justification? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Condemnation is a status word. Justification is a status word. In Paul's mind and in Paul's language and in Paul's writing, these two words are status words. They're legal terms. The opposite of justification is condemnation. If you're in a courtroom setting and you're charged with a crime and you're found guilty of that crime, then you are condemned. If you are charged with a crime and you're found to having not committed that crime, you are innocent, then you are vindicated or you are justified and you can leave because you are found to not have committed that crime. To be justified means that God declares you fully righteous with regard to his law. You have broken it, you've broken it a thousand times. To be justified means that God says, not only have you not broken it, but you've kept it perfectly at every point. Not because you actually have in your person, but because you are united to one who has. Jesus Christ obeyed God's law at every point and in every way, thought, affection, feeling and action, loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, never faltering once, never sinning, so 
so that now when you are united to him, God sees you as having fully kept the law just like Jesus. Though you've broken it a thousand times. Though you've broken it 5,000 times. Or if you're like me, 25 million times. Okay, so that's what it means to be justified. It means God in his heavenly courtroom declares you righteous. How is a person justified? Well, let's turn back to Galatians because Paul wants to make it very clear in, in one verse that there's one way to be justified and there's one way to not be justified. We know that a person is justified is not justified by works of the law. A person is not justified by works of the law. So he's going to do this contrasting thing here several times in just one short sentence. We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but here's the way you are, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So if we were to have a pop quiz after just reading that sentence and I were to ask you, how are you not justified? You would say, by works of the law, because Paul just repeated it multiple times. And then I would say, how are you justified? And you would say, by faith in Christ. But it's not enough to just say faith in Christ. You have to contrast that with works of the law to, in order to say that, that faith and works of the law, when it comes to justification, are two separate and opposite things. Works of the law... When it comes to being right with God, works of the law, works of the law and faith are opposites. Whatever it means to believe in Jesus, it means that you are not attempting to be justified by works of the law. Trusting in Jesus Christ for our justification is not a work, nor does it involve works in any way, shape, or form. When it comes to our right standing before God, faith and works are like oil and water. They cannot mix. They stand as antithetical to each other. Now, someone, see, here's, here's, someone might be thinking already, but Derek, if you are so sharp on this point, and you, you hit this so hard like this, and you keep pressing this issue that faith and works are opposites when it comes to justification, and then you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a bunch of people who say that they're saved and they're justified who live like the devil and they don't obey God. And that may sound real spiritual. But I would argue, based on the history of churches that have formally argued this way, that that kind of objection actually comes from a legalistic spirit. Because the only, only those who are justified, apart from works, can do works after they are justified that actually please God. If you attempt to justify yourself by the good things that you do, by being kind to your neighbor, by giving your money, by serving at a soup kitchen, if that's how you're getting right with God, that is something that God rejects wholeheartedly. He is not pleased with that. If you attempt to be justified by faith and your works, your works will never be pleasing to God. They only please God after you've been justified in Christ by faith, born again, and become His child. So we want to be careful that we are not objecting to this sharp contrast by suggesting, oh no, Derek, if you get too keen on this faith alone thing, people are going to start living like real sinners and just taking their salvation and justification for granted. That Apparently that wasn't Paul's concern. <laughs> Because he preached it as sharp as you can possibly preach. And he even anticipated that objection in Romans. Shall we sin all the more that grace may increase? May it never be. Actually, for the person that is justified, it's not possible. You've died to sin. Listen to this word in Romans. We'll come back to this one in a moment. But this is probably my favorite verse in Romans. Well, there's a lot of them in there. Um, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What are the grounds of this justification? We'll, we'll, we'll ask that question in a moment. When is a person justified? When is a person justified? Now, in case you are thinking that we're just getting too much in the details, let me just say this. This is one of those doctrines... The, 
the timing of justification, this is one of those doctrines that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. If you miss this, you've missed the gospel. If you don't have this, you don't have the gospel. Justification is a moment in time justification, the moment of faith justification. God declares you righteous the moment you place saving faith in Jesus, period, full stop, end of story, for all eternity. And just as an example, Scientology. I don't know how much you guys know about Scientology. What, a, what an accursed religion that is. But they have this massive, long list of things you have to do and levels you have to achieve in order to fi- achieve, I think they call it total freedom on this bridge from wretchedness to total freedom. And you've got to go through all these levels and read all these books and do all these programs and keep moving up. And then you might mess up and you've got to move back down the list. And it's just a mess. Christianity says the moment you place faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You're justified for eternity before God. You have the righteousness of Christ. God will never reject you because he'll never reject his son. That is Christianity, a moment in time justification. And that's what distinguishes it, among other things, from every other religion in the world that says, no, you might, you're almost there. No, no, sorry. No, you're almost there. No, sorry. Try again. So when is a person justified? Romans 5.1. This will help you lock lock it in for you in terms of a, a verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Is it it's in a, a past reality? Having been justified by faith, it happened in the past when you believed, and at that moment you were secured in God, secured in Christ having peace with God, the one with whom you had war only previously. So we have to keep, you have to keep that clear in your mind. It's a moment in time justification, a moment you believe justification, and that's essential to the gospel. You lose that, you might as well just cast it all away. That's how important that is. Okay, okay who does the justifying? Who does the justifying? Well, we've already mentioned it. It's God who justifies In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. It's God who justifies. Then the answer is, who can condemn? Well, no one can condemn because, Paul's argument, Christ Jesus has died. If you are looking for condemnation, you know where your condemnation is? On a cross 2,000 years ago. That's your condemnation. So who can condemn? No one. Now, Satan will try to. He He will whisper in your ear, you are a wretched sinner. You should be condemned. And you're like, yep. Preach. Preach, Satan. Because guess what? Jesus Christ was condemned in my place. And then he's defeated and goes somewhere else. Who does the justifying? God does the justifying. Romans 8.33. It's God who justifies. Now God treats you like his son because he considers you as righteous as his son is. Not because you have fulfilled the law on your own, but because Christ has fulfilled it for you. He looks at Christ's perfect righteousness and declares you righteous because you are united to Jesus Christ. So this isn't some sort of legal fiction. Uh, I think I want to declare you righteous. No, you are united to Christ. He is righteous. Therefore, you are considered righteous. Now, what's interesting about this is that the moment you believe, you are still ungodly. Did you know that? You're still ungodly. Romans 4, 5, it says... Remember, going back to Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. God declares you righteous, though you are still ungodly. So that, that proves, that verse proves that you don't bring something to God, just even a little something. You can't bring anything. You're ungodly. It's just... He justifies you in the midst of your ungodliness. How? Through faith. Through faith in Christ. And yes, at that moment, you begin a journey of growth in Christ's likeness. But your justification is not based on whether you brought something good and godly to God. You didn't. You couldn't. You were justified while still ungodly. Number five, we should be asking this question now. How is this even possible? How is this even possible? How can, a per- how can God do this? And interestingly, the Bible sets up its own problem. 
The Bible itself sets up its own problem. Proverbs 17, 15 says that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to God. And here you have God, what is he doing? Justifying the ungodly. So the Bible sets up its own problem. How can you have a righteous and holy God? That's the only kind of God that you want. But how can you have a holy and righteous God justifying ungodly sinners like us? Let me press it a little farther. How can you have him justifying ungodly sinners like David? Who not only committed adultery, but then had Bathsheba's husband murdered. Yet, you read the Psalms, and he finds full and complete relieving forgiveness in God. How can that be? How can that be? How can God justify a sinner like that? Isn't this like a judge who, in hearing a case of a serial child killer, after he's determined the defendant is guilty of killing ten children and throwing their bodies into a river, isn't it kind of like that judge saying, eh, you're guilty, but... I just want to be merciful today. I just, you know, I'm having a good day. I'm feeling good. I want to vindicate you. Go in peace. Wow. We would riot, wouldn't we? If we heard about that, we just, that'd, be, that'd be a total miscarriage of justice. Isn't that what God is doing here? Well, absolutely not. Romans 3, 21 through 26, uh, J.R. read this today, and this is, some have called this the most important paragraph in the Bible, so it deserves its own set of sermons, but we're just going to look at it briefly because I want us to see how this is possible. How is it possible that God can justify the ungodly? This is how. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay? So this righteousness that we receive, it's not through keeping of the law, although it's borne witness through it in the law and the prophets, so the Old Testament bears witness to this justification by faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how do you receive this gift of righteousness? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so we're all sinners. We all come the same way. We all have the same problem. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's how it happens. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So how does he do it? You receive this righteousness because Christ has died in your place. It's Christ's righteousness. Christ bore the wrath in your place. Someone has to be punished. Someone has to to die for your sins. And it's going to either be you or it's going to be Jesus, the perfect son of God. It's Jesus. And Paul anticipates that there's a problem here. And he says that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What is he referring to? He's referring to, for example, David. All the sins that God forgave of the saints in the Old Testament, they have to be accounted for. You can't just pass over sins, or at least a righteous God can't pass over sins. That's a problem with Islam. Asking a Muslim how they're forgiven, they're like, Allah just forgives. That's totally unjust. That's terrible. You, Allah is an unjust, false God. Okay? God, the true God, is just. He is always just. He is beautifully just. And he punishes his son in your place. So then he can be, here it is, just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith plus what? Faith plus giving up your firstborn? Faith plus running a marathon? What? Faith plus serving at church? Faith plus giving $10,000? What is it? Just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's been a life-saving verse for me. Just faith in Jesus. That's it. See, the righteousness of God was up for question. How can God be righteous if he's forgiving sinners? This is the answer. Christ Jesus has borne the wrath in your place. So now you turn to him and trust him. That's why God can say things, just look to me. Look to me and be saved. Behold Jesus and be saved. Can your justification ever change? Can it ever change? No. As a legal declaration, it can never be reversed. It cannot be lost. It cannot change. 
That's why, going back to Romans 8, 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, your justification is as secure as Jesus' seat on this Father's throne right now. Anybody want to call that into question? Anybody want to say that Jesus is somehow susceptible of slipping off that throne? Your justification is as secure as Christ sitting on his throne, which is exactly why Paul would go on to say this just a few verses later in Romans 8, 38-39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will hold me fast. Why? Why? Because I'm righteous? No, because I'm united to Christ. God has declared me righteous. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you ever. Ever. You can, justification can never change. Number seven, what are works of the law? What are the works of the law? This is an important question because there are some who are arguing today that the real, Paul is really just focusing on these things that made Jews unique and the works of the law are the, the works of the Old Covenant and, and, and circumcision and, and the Old Testament dietary restrictions and the Old Testament celebrations and so on. These are the works of the law that Paul's talking about. But that's to artificially narrow Paul's concern here. And it's also to misunderstand why the law was given. Israel is a test case, as it were as to what happens when sinful human beings come in contact with the law of God. What do they do? Well, they form idols almost immediately. They reject God just a few minutes later. That's what simple hearts do. So you can't artificially narrow works of the law to just these things that made Israel unique because one of the reasons why God gave his law to Israel was to demonstrate to the whole world what happens when you bring sinful hearts into contact with God's law. This demonstrates that even when God himself gives his own law to his own people, obedience to that law cannot justify because the human heart is sinful. In other words, there are no works at all ever that can justify us. If works of God's law can't justify, then no human works ever can ever justify. Again, works of the law are any attempt, here's the definition, the works of the law are any attempt to get right with God that is not purely faith in Jesus Christ. And I didn't say that doesn't have faith in Christ. Because the Judaizers, you'll remember, said that they had faith in Christ, but they also wanted to attach works of the law to that. So we're not just saying that it doesn't have faith. We're saying that it can only be faith that justifies. Like I said last week, if you attempt to add works to Jesus, you don't get works plus Jesus. You're multiplying by zero. You end up with nothing, no matter what you started with. The works of the law are opposite of faith in Christ. Any attempt to get yourself right with God by your works, that, are, that is works of the law. Those are the works of the law. Maybe within a church context, maybe within a secular context, maybe within a Jewish context, it doesn't matter. Any attempt of you trying to get right with God by your works, by your attempts at goodness, that won't justify. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way a person can be declared righteous by God. Why can a person not be justified by works of the law? Why not? What's, what's the problem, Derek? I mean, again, this feels like a little bit of theological hair splitting. What's the problem? I mean, is it really worth a curse that Paul brings down in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and following? Well, let me see if I can add a little rationale to this. Here's a couple of verses to just solidify it. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, so there's another verse. Galatians 2.16, we've already looked at, looked at it. Paul contrasts works of the law and faith multiple times, saying you cannot be justified by works of the law. Three times. Why not? 
Number one, you are already worthy of condemnation due to Adam's representative sin in your place. So we're already under God's condemnation because of Adam. Okay, that's the first reason. Second reason is you've broken the whole law multiple times and you currently stand condemned before God and you can't make up for that law breaking. You can't retroactively make up for law breaking by present works or future works. Your obedience to God's law without forgiveness of sin in a regenerate heart that loves God is very displeasing to God. We need to have our sins forgiven first before we start to labor and serve the Lord. Attempted obedience to God's law to justify yourself only reveals more and more sin. Paul makes that point in Romans 3.20. The law reveals sin. Attempts to obey the law reveals sin. Paul said that. Remember he says, the law said, do not covet. And guess what he started doing? Coveting. Because that's what the law does. I'm going to really not try to covet. And then that's all you do. And then finally, number five, obedience to God's law cannot atone for the sin you've already committed. To attempt to be justified by works is just utterly impossible. It's, it's impossible. It's a non-starter. To look at the law and be like, okay, I know I've sinned against God, but I'm going to make up for it. Can't happen. You can't retroactively atone for past sin. How feeble are we? How, how, must, how, much, how little we must think of the holiness of God to think that we can somehow atone for our sin by present and future works. So we can't be justified by works of the law. Our sin is too great. God's holiness is too great. We need someone to stand in our place to take care of everything on our behalf. And that's what Christ has done. And let me just say this. This also includes what we would call gospel works or evangelical works. So once you become a Christian and you're justified by faith and you're, you're saved by grace and you're walking in the Spirit and you're this happy, regenerate Christian, it's possible for you to get waylaid by thinking that now the works that I do, they secure my justification or they add to my justification or they keep me saved. And you'd be falling into the trap of the Galatians. So even our gospel works aren't what secure our justification. When you stand before God, you will be no more righteous than Christ is. You'll be no more righteous in terms of in relation to his law than you are now. Your justification does not change. So even our evangelical obedience or our obedience as Christian doesn't undergird or secure our justification. That's already happened. When you are justified in the, the future, when God sets you up before the whole world who has rejected you and rejected Christ and laughed in your face, and he says, you are justified, this is my son, they will enter into eternity with me, and you're vindicated on that day, nothing will have changed about you. Same justification here as you have right now. Why? Because you are united to Jesus Christ. Number nine. How do I know if I am attempting to be justified by the law? We're going to end with this. This is what's happening in Galatia. They're attempting to be justified by the law. What are some signs? Are there some spiritual things I can pick up on? Things I can be aware of in my own life? The lesson we have to take from this situation in Galatia is that it is, it, is, it is possible for believers to develop wrong thinking about their justification and to become ensnared in legalism. It, it, that can happen to a born-again Christian. Okay, that's the lesson we need to take away. You and I are susceptible of becoming ensnared in legalism. We're susceptible of wrong thinking about our right standing with God uh, coming into our minds and, and hearts and believing wrong things about the gospel. And Satan would love nothing more than that. Because what that does is that disables you from vital Christian service. It disables you from walking in the spirit. It disables you from joy. It disables you from fighting sin. All he has to do is come into Galatia and say, plus circumcision. Done. Job done. And he can leave and go on to another church. How are you justified this morning? Is it by faith alone in Christ? So how do we know... Well, here's just some, a few signs, okay? Sign number one, you are afraid to confess your sins to God because you are afraid of his condemnation. When we are assured of our justification by faith alone, we can freely confess our sins to God because we know those sins don't condemn us. 
In fact, I would argue that it's impossible to fully confess your sins if you are somehow wondering if God's going to condemn you for them. How can you offer them freely and open your heart to God unless you are certain that he looks looks upon you, even with your sin, as a beloved child? How How can you confess your heart to God without that assurance? When we try to cover up for those sins, rather than freely confessing them to God and to others if necessary, we are at root trying to establish our standing with God by our works. That's what's happening. And you may not even realize it's happening, but that is what's happening. We're trying to be righteous. We're trying to be righteous our way rather than trusting in Christ who is righteous and fully confessing our sins to God. So that's one sign. I just have a few of these, so... We'll be, we'll be moving, here quick, moving through here quickly. Number two, a similar scenario to that is when we attempt to make up for our sins by doing more Christian works. Serving, Bible reading, religious activity, philanthropy, rather than confessing our sins to God and trusting Christ's work on our behalf. Full stop. Rather than doing that, we attempt to atone for our sins by engaging in religious activity and trying to have a way of appeasing our conscience. Why is it that those who have secret sin lurking beneath the surface are often those who are most busy with religious service, and all of a sudden, boom, it's a big scandal? Number three, one sign, or another sign rather, that you are walking by works rather than faith in Christ, is that you're noticing that you've lost power in your life to fend off sin. You're walking, you're running well, Paul would ask. What happened? And we think, well, maybe it's because I'm not reading my Bible enough or praying enough or busy enough or whatever it is. Actually, Paul would say, have you considered that maybe you're walking by works rather than by faith in Christ? And you've, you've stifled the spirit in your life. Your, what, your love is starting to diminish. You, you, you began well, but now your love is starting to diminish. You're more impatient because you're burdened with the need to fulfill God's law on your own. You are more susceptible to sin and giving more into it. When we walk by works, of the, uh, works and not by faith, we stifle the Holy Spirit and we find ourselves without spiritual power to put sin to death. So that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Have you been, were you running well and now you just notice there's just a, a drag on your, your spiritual life? There's just more sin is flourishing. And it, it's not that you're noticing it more. It's, it just, there is, there's, it's happening more. And, and there's love is less in your life. And you're, the blessedness you once felt is kind of dissipated. Just Paul would ask you, is it because you're beginning to walk by works rather than by faith? Finally, Another sign that you're walking by works and not by faith is that you lack, you lack assurance that you're of your right standing with God. You lack assurance that you are presently right with God. If you live by works rather than faith, then your conscience will constantly remind you of how short you are to fulfilling God's righteous standard. You never can keep up. It is like a treadmill. You can never keep up with that righteous standard. God's righteousness and holiness is so infinitely beyond what we could even begin to imagine that we, can, we only can have recourse to faith in Christ. But if you're beginning to lean on your works in order to get you right standing with God, then your conscience will be constantly burdened because you know you always fall short. But if you live by faith in Christ, your conscience will be reminded continually that your right standing is not based on your works, it's not undermined by your sin, but it is upon Jesus Christ alone that your justification rests, and this will stabilize your Assurance. This will enable you to now put to death the sin that is troubling you. And I just hope that this is, if this is you, if you're experiencing this, that you would refresh your minds today in these truths of justification, of your right standing before God. And put you back on the joyful path of faith in Jesus. And if, and if you haven't trusted in Jesus today, or if this foreign to you, these things are foreign to you, then I would encourage you to consider the fact that your Creator is utterly and totally holy and righteous, 
His standard is beyond anything you could imagine. You have sinned against him both in Adam and in your own person. It's breaking his law a thousand, ten thousand, a million times. You know that you don't treasure God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for your justification. And because of this, God must punish you in that for eternity. But listen to this. He laid the weight of your sin and all of your punishment on Jesus Christ, his son, 2,000 years ago, so that what is left is to look on him and believe. He has died. He has risen again. He stands in heaven, and he calls you to himself, saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, by attempting to obey the law in order to get right with God, and come to me, look to me, and you will find rest. So if that's you today, I would encourage you to look to Jesus. Would you all pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these vital words from Galatians, from Romans. I pray for each person in here that we would refresh our minds in the truths of the gospel, of justification. What a precious truth. I don't think we know it well enough. Even the reformers saw it as their business and their job to preach it to their people constantly. It's our jobs as individual Christians to preach it to our own souls, to preach it to one another, to remind each other, to help us fight the fight of faith, fight the fight of believing the gospel. And it's only then that we will walk in the Spirit and produce the fruits of the Spirit and do works that please you. But first and foremost, we must be settled in our minds that the one who does not work but who believes in you is justified. And we ask that you give us this clarity for your glory and for our spiritual benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.